Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I'm replaying some of my favorite interviews from this past season of my television show, Pop Life, for you today. You can watch Pop Life on television, Saturday nights, 8.30 p.m. on the CTV News Channel, midnight on CTV. A little bit later on in the show, we'll meet Bob Gruen, and he tells the story behind one of the most famous rock and roll pictures ever taken. You don't want to miss that. Then Biff Naked stops by to talk about her new music, her life, and a new line of CBD products she's releasing to the public. But first up, musical legend Harry Connick Jr. stops by. He has a new album called True Love, a celebration of Cole Porter. But how did he get there? How did he first find out that he loved music? Here's Harry Connick Jr. to tell you the story. You say that one of your earliest memories is standing by a piano or playing a piano when you were three. Right. What do you remember about that? I, I remember sort of in a hazy way kind of walking up to this piano and pressing notes down and they were about head height yeah, yeah. and I just remember the feeling of hearing something that corresponded to what I was doing with my finger right. and just saying that's the coolest thing <laughs> ever you know and just being fascinated by that and that was the beginning of your interest in music then I guess yeah right? it was and and I think my mother saw that I was fascinated by that so she kind of started dragging me around to see if I could get piano lessons and nobody's really interested in teaching at least they weren't then like a, a you know a three-year-old so it was I guess I was around six when I started really kind of getting into it more yeah. seriously did you have big hands back then no even still, as a, like a six-year-old you can't really get the I, reach I couldn't right? I couldn't yeah. I remember when listen to this so when I was nine years old Ubi Blake and for your viewers who may yeah. not remember Ubi Blake he was a pianist uh, that was born in like 1883 and I met him when he was 96 years old wow. or 98 years old, and I was nine. And he wrote a very famous song called um, I'm Just Wild About Harry. Mm -hmm. And I played that with him, and his hands were abnormally large, yeah. and he could reach, I mean, they were far bigger than my hands are. And I remember, like, looking at this man's hands thinking, wait, man, if, like, <laughs> if I need hands like that, I'm never going to have hands like that. And so uh, just average size. I remember meeting Dr. John one time and being amazed at his hands because his fingers were so big. I thought, how do you play? Yeah, well, he had to kind of, kind of pause, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but it worked for him. It's, it's, sure it's it amazing. Like, you look at different people's hands, like different trumpet players or saxophone players, you look at their, or, or violinists, yeah. that's what gets me. I see, like, it's like Perlman or somebody who has these giant hands on this very small yeah, instrument. Yeah. Like, how does, <laughs> how's that possible? And what music were you listening to? Were you going through your parents' record collection? A and, little bit. Yeah. yeah they, they, I didn't have to go through it because they were playing stuff anyway. They owned a record store in the 50s before I was born, but they kept a lot of those old records, so I heard a lot of that. My sister was a big Zeppelin fan, big Beatles fan. <laughs> Plus, I was hearing all of the music that was on the radio. I grew up in the 70s, so we heard a lot of Donna Summer. We mm -hmm. heard a lot of you know pop and Michael Jackson and you know Billy Joel yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. So, yeah, back before radio was so formatted, you could hear a Billy Joel song, and then you could hear, growing up in New Orleans, you might hear oh, a yeah. jazz song afterwards, and then you'd hear, you know, Well, to, be, to be honest, not really. When I grew up in the 70s and 80s, there were definitely still categories of yeah. music. In fact, when I talked to my wife about things, I guess because it was so, uh, such a big African-American population in New Orleans, that we got a lot of music that she didn't get in Boulder, Colorado. Right. So I knew a lot of songs that she didn't know, and she knew a lot of songs that I didn't know, just because there was definitely... 
at that time, white radio, black radio, yeah. country radio, for sure. Now, is there a, a record that you remember from your youth that might surprise people that you loved? Like, were you a big Van Halen fan, or was there something like that? I did that? like Van Halen, but probably the, the jazz album by Queen um, was, was yeah. like a big, a big influence on me, only because Freddie Mercury, to this day, is still one of my all-time heroes. The stuff that he yeah. did vocally, um, the, the songwriting, the production, all of that stuff just... I'm not sure people would think that I would like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get to the new record in a sec, but it's such fascinating stuff here. So Ellis Marsalis was one of your childhood mentors. How did he encourage you? Interesting question, because Ellis wasn't really an encourager. <laughs> Ellis isn't the kind of guy who's sort of warm and fuzzy. Ellis is the father of six boys, two of whom are Winton and Branford Marsalis, right. who are among the greatest musicians, in my opinion, that have ever yeah. played the instruments. Ellis uh, was, was a tough teacher. He didn't tolerate any foolishness. He had an unbelievably high standard, uh, and if you didn't live up to it, you, you were gone. Yeah. So he demanded excellence. He demanded uh, an intense work ethic. Um, and speaking of encouragement, this is an example of something he said to me once. You should consider another vocation. You should consider maybe, in, in total seriousness, you should consider maybe doing something else for a living. And what does that do to you? Makes you practice harder. Yeah. Makes you, and yeah. he wasn't trying to get me to practice harder. I actually think he thought, you know, at this rate, you, you're, you don't have much to offer. So he, it wasn't like some reverse psychology mm -hmm. on his part. He was just telling it like it was. And, yeah, so he, he, he wasn't very encouraging. Wow. Well, James Booker was another mentor of yours. That's right. And I love Dr. John says he's the best gay one-eyed junkie piano <laughs> genius New Orleans ever produced. Well, you might be, might be right about that. James Booker was, was a genius in every sense of the word, and it was a very different relationship that I had with Ellis. Ellis mm -hmm. was every day, very formal. Right. James would kind of show up at my house sometimes, or I'd go and hear him on a gig, or we'd kind of meet you know, in passing. And he was um, just another level of, of talent. He could do things on the piano that to this day haven't been done before. And he died young, right? He died 43 years 43 old. 43 years and old. And it's unbelievable to think that. It's yeah. really, I'm 52. See, as you get older, as you hit, because when you were with studying with him, you were probably 10. Yeah, 10, yeah. yeah. So he seemed probably really old. But yeah. then when you pass that benchmark, you go, wow, that is just starting out. Really. Yeah, it, is, it yeah. is incredible. I think a lot about... Um, a lot of people like to associate creativity with sort of the tortured artist. Yeah. And I think had he been, if the help that he needed were accessible to him, right. then he probably would have, certainly would have been more at peace, very potentially could have still been alive, yeah. and much more prolific, I think. You've had such great mentors in your career, uh, and now you give back. You encourage people, you mentor people. How do you give back to another generation? I love kids. I love talking to young people about music. You know, when, I'll do master classes at different universities, and I open it up to anything. I said, listen, we don't have to talk about music. We can talk about whatever you want. Hit me with any questions that mm -hmm. you want about whatever. I was given so, so, so much by the people in my life. My mother, my father, Ellis, James Booker, people like that, mm -hmm. um, that... I feel compelled to, to, to share that. That's how this, this stuff continues, you know, and I call my children younger, better versions of me. You know, they're just going to, they're going to take it and go. Yeah. They may not be with what I'm doing. Yeah. It won't be, but they, they will take in their way what they love to do and surpass me. So any, any time that I can 
talk to somebody who's curious about this stuff, I'm happy to do it. Do the kids play anything? They, okay, so Georgia, my oldest, she's 23. She was, she could have been a really good piano player, but she just wasn't interested. Yeah. Kate, my 22-year-old, is a singer. And Charlotte, who is 17, might be the one that goes into show business, but the jury's still out. <laughs> what did your parents, you come from a long line of attorneys. And so you've been performing since you were five. Uh, but uh, what did your parents think when you said, you know, I'm going into show, but I'm going to make a living as a, as a jazz piano player. Right. Well, to be fair, it wasn't really a long line only because it was just my mom and dad. Like, after their generation, their parents weren't attorneys. My grandma was a nurse, and my dad was in, like, the Corps. My grandpa was in the Corps of Engineers. On my dad's side, on my mother's side, um, my grandmother was kind of an opera singer. She was from oh. Hungary and kind of a, from what I understand, did yeah. a little bit of that. But the thing about my parents... They didn't care what me nor my sister wanted to do. They, they just knew that we, we needed to have the best education mm-hmm. at it. My sister's now a psychiatrist and an internist and just got promoted to colonel in the Army uh, Reserve. I always wanted to be a musician. They supported it, um, and, and here I am. Now, you had made uh, a couple of records that, I read in an interview, you said they sold, you know, 10 or 15,000 copies each, and, which is respectable for, sure. you know. So yeah, you Especially know, when you haven't sold any. When you haven't sold any, and, and you're living your life, you're, you're playing and probably making a, eking out a living anyway. That's right. Playing. Uh, and then when Harry Met Sally comes along and changes absolutely everything. Right. What was that moment like? Because the difference between 15,000 records and 15 million records <laughs> yeah. uh, is extreme. Man, I, you know, I, I remember the feeling of um, I would go into the record stores when my first couple albums came out, and I would, I would say, "Hey, uh, any new, any new uh, jazz records selling well?" And they had no idea. I would, and they say, "No, not really." I'm like, "What about uh, any like piano players?" And I mean, they were like, "No, not not much." And when when Harry Met Sally came out, I mean, that was a complete game changer yeah. for me. I mean, as you said, I went from selling thousands to millions of records, and. I mean, every, everything changed. I, I, I was playing in large venues. Yeah. I had a big band I could play with. People were recognizing me on the street. I mean, it was a complete life change. Well, what kind of play does that have in your head? Like, how do you maintain a level head when it happens so quickly? I'm not so, so sure how level my head was. <laughs> I look back at some of the boneheaded things I used to do, just trying to, you know, figure it out. You know, yeah. I would become impatient with people if they wanted an autograph or... Right. You know, just, just it's, you know, you got 20, 30 people that you're employing, you become a, a band leader, you, yeah. it, it's a lot, you know, so it, it takes, it, t- it took me a lot of time to try to understand how uh, lucky I actually was, um, and, and with the type of family I have, you learn those lessons pretty quick, because they don't, they don't tolerate, you yeah. know, any, any nonsense. We're going to meet now uh, Biff Naked. She's a multi-gold and platinum-selling artist. She is a punk princess, a rock goddess, a legend. She's all that and more. Add to the list cancer survivor, mentor, and entrepreneur. She has a new tour, a new record, and her own CBD brand. Biff is busier than ever. She is one of my favorite guests on Pop Life. Listen in and you'll find out why. Here's Biff Naked. You were born in New Delhi? to two missionaries. When I said we're going way back, we're going way, way back. That's a long time ago. They adopted you, brought you to the U.S. Yeah. Um, do you feel a connection to that part of yourself, to the New Delhi side of yourself? Oh, 100%. You know, it's very funny because I, I had always 
kind of identified with my birthright. Mm -hmm. And my parents were, um, they wanted to keep that alive in my older sister and myself. We were both adopted. And I was the only Canadian in my family because my birth mom was Canadian. Right. So I was the Canuck in the family. <laughs> but we grew up having uh, Hindustani food every Sunday night. And uh, my parents would try and ensure that we uh, could, you know, easily try and understand small kid Hindi. I'm terrible at it t today <laughs> as an adult. But I definitely romanticized the culture and mm -hmm. really have that part of me that. Yeah, always going to be the same, very much alive. Do you ever go back? I went, last time I went back, I was lucky enough to go to uh, four different cities, and uh, it was amazing. It's just finding the time, because you want to go, you want to go for a month. Well, it's so far away. And it's expensive. You have to go for a month. Yeah. And it's expensive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's fast forward then to uh, Dauphine, Manitoba. Yes. How did you end up there? Well, it's Canada's national Ukrainian capital. And uh, my dad was teaching uh, dental therapists. It's a long story. It's <laughs> academic stuff. He was at the University of Kentucky, and then he took a job in Manitoba. Right. And that's how we wound up there. I went to um, junior high there, and then we moved to Winnipeg for high school and university. And when you were about 14, you wanted to be a doctor. Uh, you had done ballet, you had all that stuff, and then everything changed when a boyfriend gave you a Judas Priest album. What unleashed happened? in the East. It was Unleashed in the East, a live record. Green Manalishi. Um, yes, it really did it change still everything. It hits a chord with you. It's because it's so funny, and it's lovely. It's anthemic. It's theater. You know, like these bands that were around, you know, I just think that they we had it much better than young people today. But it did definitely uh, get me on a different path. I enjoyed all the music that yeah. the boys listened to. Right. And that definitely changed the trajectory for me. And, and how so? Like, how did it influence you? Did you uh, just start writing songs immediately? Did you think, oh, I can do that? Not at all. I didn't no? had no desire to be in music. I was a musical theater um, student, but I wound up in a band because these punk rock guys in my theater class had a band. It was like literally that simple. And I dropped out of university, went on tour, and never returned. Right. And Winnipeg, there was a lot of punk rock happening in Winnipeg at the time. What? 40 below. What? Is you, that what it there's is? There's nothing else to do. Plus, it's flat. Like, really, the prairies are great for skateboarding and BMXing. Right. And that culture was really uh, just kind of developing. And Winnipeg is, like, very multicultural. Mm. You know, it's a really great community, and it's a great place to grow up. You're listening to Biff Naked on The Richard Krause Show. And when all this was happening, when you were starting with bands and singing with bands and going on the road with them and all that sort of thing, did you consider it a risk? Did you think that, you know, X amount of years later, we'd be sitting here talking about it? Well, I think that every kid that is a punk or has any misadventure at all in their lives doesn't envision that they're going to get older. Right. We all think we're going to croak by yep. the time we're 30. So once 30 came and went, it was like, we're, I'm still here, let's keep going. And, and then you just keep, you keep going. I just never envisioned I'd still be doing this, and it's fantastic. What did you think being a woman in a punk band? Because the whole sort of ethos about punk rock was that it was equal and everyone was supposed to be treated the same, but I'm not sure that that was always the case if you were a woman on the road playing with a bunch of guys. Well, I think for me, uh, being a tomboy really was uh, to my benefit. Um, but I also knew that I had uh, kind of to take a lesson in being professional no matter what was going on. Right. 
And uh, no matter what you do, especially back then, th there was definitely like a hypersexualization of any chick on stage. Mm -hmm. That's what I always used to say. Oh, because these, you know, these guys in the mosh pit, they only are used to seeing the pole. You know, so that's how they react to you. And so when it, they see a woman on stage. Really and truly, and I mean, this is in the early 90s, and we tended to overcompensate and be really like clowny and jokey, right. but also kind of, you know, aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's why that happened. It was overcompensating. I, when I met you, mm -hmm. I wasn't quite sure who I was going to meet because <laughs> I'd seen you perform a number of times and, and I think I had seen you perform at different times in your career when you were much more aggressive maybe than you are now on stage, sure. even though the shows are highly amped today still, but it was different things. So I wasn't sure who was going to come in. And then I meet you, fall in love with you immediately. God bless you. <laughs> I'm a Gemini. <laughs> As am I. Um, and, and, you know, we talked a, a great deal, and uh, you love poetry and literature, which might not, I might not have thought for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, how does poetry and literature inspire you, not only in your music, but also in your day-to-day -day life? Oh, you know, language is like my favorite thing mm -hmm. because really, and it, it's great for songwriting and poetry and songwriting are the same. Ultimately, everything's couplets at the right. end of the day. Really, it is. And uh, just finding language to form your feelings is a challenge. Yeah. Uh, it makes you use your brain. And also, you know, if you can say it, you can sing it. Right, right. And that's the truth. Do you write a song a day? Um, or a song a week? No, but I write a poem a day, for yeah. sure. And then when we're consciously doing songwriting, uh, then I'll write a song. But yeah, usually I don't write the music. Well, you're very active on Twitter, and, and you're, I always think that Twitter gives you a certain discipline working because you have to get your message out in a very short yes. uh, space of time. Yes. And if you do love words and you love wordplay, it's one place to kind of practice a little bit. I Absolutely. I started, uh, Twitter made me an editor. <laughs> Honestly, that's right. It, it totally did because now as I work with younger artists and they send me just anything, a bio or a blog that they wrote, can you look at it? I find that I can co really comb through it quickly and trim. In 2008, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And this was a, a, a changing point in your life. Uh, but I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but things got better for you in some ways after that diagnosis. Oh, definitely. I think it does for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I knew how uh, overworked I was. Right. And I was probably a, a living example of someone who was orthorexic and overworking. So I Is over... Orthorexic? Orthorexic, so maybe it's a, fa a fancy term. But really, I think that I was, uh, like they say, a workaholic. Mm -hmm. But I was also, uh, I over-exercised. I, uh, right. I was constantly, um, you know, so obsessed with how I was eating, you know, that if there wasn't the, any vegan food or a banana or something that I could eat, I just would not eat anything. Right. And that was like, that went on for years. And I think that it, until I was diagnosed and had to stay home for chemo, all I did was tour. We did 200 shows a year yeah. for a decade. You know, I don't know what would have stopped it. Honestly, it was a blessing because I was finally home with my dogs. So you didn't miss life on the road? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, but, you know, now we tour and now it's, yeah. it's fun. I'm my own. I tour manage the band. You do everything, and, right? Uh, and I love it. Yeah. And I love it.
And you're not doing 200 shows a year. No, we only do the shows that we want to do, which mm -hmm. is very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you wrote a memoir. Yes. Uh, was it hard writing about the, the sort of personal parts of your life and making those parts public? Well, you know, I have to thank Jim Gifford at HarperCollins, who was my very patient editor, because uh, I tend to over-talk, and back then, I mean, I didn't understand word count. Right. So there were a lot of things that I wanted to say, but I, uh, I, I was too descriptive, or, you know, they, they kind of slashed and burned. I think yeah. the word was libel, libel, <laughs> libel. But, you know, a lot of the stories I thought would be easy, because I'd already written songs about them, mm -hmm. but it was so different. Uh, I can hide behind a metaphor right. in a song, but when you write the story down as it happened, you're very vulnerable. Well, and it has to be authentic. Yes. It has to be real, otherwise people won't buy in. That's right. Yeah. 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 It, it, was, uh, it was hard. Okay. Some names that people call you. The punk princess, rock goddess, there's a legend. People call you legend. How do you feel about all of that? I always say I'm only a legend in my kitchen. <laughs> That's it. That's the only place that I am like a hero or any type of anything. I love cooking. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and being a tour manager is because it's like it's mommying, mm. and I think that that's also why I like cooking. Do you think uh, that you are a risk taker? Would you consider yourself that? I think that even if I am afraid, I'll do it anyway. Right. So I suppose that's a risk taker, but it's not really deliberate. Do you, do you get a, a charge out of doing things that, that challenge you, that, that push you in a different direction? I do. You know, I think that it's important, and I also think that uh, sometimes, as a female, I have to do things that people say I can't do. Right, right. It's a habit. Well, you've got so much going on right now as we sit here. Thank you for taking some time out. You're let's very talk. nice. Let's, let's talk about some of this. Okay. You have uh, a new single coming out. Yes. What's the new single? Jim. It's called Jim. It's out on Friday. J-Y-M or J-I-M? J-I-M. Yeah. And Jim is the villain in the story. Uh, it's a story of betrayal, of course, <laughs> and overcoming the betrayal. And I love those themes. Yeah. Um, and it, it was a labor of love. We wrote a record last year. And it's just the first, the first song that we're putting out, and we have a video uh, that was fun to make. I get to wear boxing gloves and, <laughs> and hit, the, hit the bad guy, so it's fantastic. And you're going on tour? Yes, we've got acoustic dates, and we've got a tour announcement next week uh, that's going to be a, a tour that'll take us up until summer. Uh, how are the acoustic shows different? Because a, a, a great song can be played, I think, either with mm -hmm. uh, you know, the full band or, or just acoustically and still have as much impact. But for you, as a performer, how are the acoustic shows different? Well, you know, the acoustic shows, my guitar player is my husband. Mm -hmm. So I irritate him <laughs> a lot. I, I abuse him on stage and I talk about my mother-in-law and, and talk, you know, just like harass him constantly. But a lot of these songs, like Spaceman is a perfect example of a song that was written um, you know, it's really anthemic, people are familiar with it, but to sing it acoustically, it, it's very slowed down and it's a very sad little song. Mm. And uh, when we perform it, it's like, I mean, I've cried singing it and people in there, it's very quiet and it's 
haunting and you know you look up at the at the spaceman you want him to save you i mean those feelings exist every time i sing those songs and so I, I love myself today was it strikes such a chord with people. Good. And, and you, uh, I don't know, how many times do you think you've sung that song? 10,000 oh times? Oh my gosh, yes, at least. And, and does it still strike a chord with you? Every I time? love it. Yeah. I love singing it because I really think that, you know, even if you don't believe it, uh, even if you mouth the words, it, it's going to make you feel better yeah. or happy. Um, even if it seems preposterous to you to even say it, it's a, it's a good mantra to have. You're also an entrepreneur now. Not only do you tour manage and do all that sort of stuff, but you are now uh, uh, in the CBD market. So tell me what <laughs> CBD is, because well, you're, not, you're, you're not selling marijuana, you're selling CBD, which doesn't have the THC in it, right? Correct. So, I mean, you can't really have a conversation about CBD, which is, I mean, it's very popular. Cannabis has been utilized for thousands of years. Um, and, and CBD oil is from an extraction process and a lot of the CBD that's popular today has THC in it right. uh, and people- And that's the stuff that gets you hot. Well, yes. Yeah. But also, you know, there's a, a lot of schools of thought regarding uh, should it have CBD, I mean, right. should it have uh, THC or not? And I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an expert, I just know what works for my mother's arthritis right. and I know what works for you know my cousin's anxiety and uh, and the CBD oil market has exploded so you don't really know what you're getting you don't know what the oils are right. and uh, and we're squares you know ultimately we're squares we want uh, products that are organic we want products that aren't gonna like intoxicate us or, or bring us any harm and so when I was asked to come on with uh, Mona Lisa healing it was just a natural thing for me to want to say yes because there are only two ingredients and I know where the growers are from it's organic it's vegan I mean it's in my opinion obviously it's the perfect product I also love that you are keeping it at a price point so that it's not placed way out of reach for people well, and that's why, it's, that's why it's yeah. online, too. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's easy to put your product in a boutique store, but then they jack up the price. And somebody who really has anxiety or, or a problem sleeping, uh, they can't afford it, mm -hmm. you know? So hopefully it's, it's going to be accessible for a long time, and we're going to be doing discounts depending on, you know, charity things right. and paying it forward as the company evolves. We've heard from two musicians already on the show. Harry Connick Jr. and Biff Naked. Now let's hear from a non-musician who helped to find a generation or two of music. Bob Gruen has taken photographs of everyone from Cab Calloway and Chuck Berry to The Boss and Madonna, from The Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin to his best friend, John Lennon, in one of the most famous pictures ever taken of a rock and roll star. Here, Bob Gruen tells the story of the famous New York City t-shirt photograph that has donned dorm room walls for years and years. Here's rock photographer Bob Gruen. One of the most iconic photographs it does get of, of, its, it's, of its era. When my mom's friends started knowing that picture, she realized I really had gotten somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and you know, not only is it John Lennon, mm. but that that T-shirt. I think you single-handedly kept the the life of this T-shirt uh, alive for the last. And, and uh, I don't even know who made it. It's not from a company. There was just two guys who used to sell them on a blanket in Times Square. Really. And the first time I saw it, I just liked the power of the graphics, and I bought myself uh, one. And then I saw them again. I bought myself a few more. 
Uh, one night on the way to visit John in the studio, I saw the guys in the street, and I bought one for him. And I cut the sleeves off with a buck knife to give it a kind of New York feel. Right. Uh, and it was actually a year later that we were taking the picture, and um, John had been to L.A. and back. You know, there was a lost weekend mm-hmm. involved, and the fact that he still had the shirt and knew where it was, um, <laughs> I knew he liked it. Uh, and he looked so comfortable in it, and I think that because we were friends by that time, and he was very comfortable with me, uh, the picture kind of shows an openness and a availability. Uh, even though he's got the glasses, he yeah, looks yeah. like a pop star. Uh, he's very available in that picture. Well, and and do you know when you're taking them? I assume that you probably took. We took a couple of rolls of film. Yeah, a couple day. of yeah. rolls. <laughs> that's one for twenty or thirty <laughs> pictures, maybe. I don't yeah, know, maybe at least, more. Yeah. And and. When you're developing them and you're looking at them and you go, oh, that's the well, one. Well, I have a sense for that. I can look at a contact print and you just look through it and you just pick the one that has the feeling and the power. Because uh, for me, I've always tried to capture the feeling of what's going on and not just the facts. Um, so that's always been very important. And you became his personal photographer and you were, you were friends. How did that mm-hmm. happen? Uh, well, I met Johnny Yoko through an interview and... Uh, it turned out they liked the pictures I did. I, I took some pictures that night. I was actually working on a story about the Elephant's Memory Band mm. uh, that they were using as a backup yeah, band. Yeah, with Yoko um, and John. Right? And yeah. they liked the pictures I took of the group all together and put it in their album cover, and uh, that's when I first met them and started talking to them. And uh, they liked me, and they asked me to come around more often. And uh, they actually lived around the corner, a half a block from my house, when they came to New York. Well, and you yeah. went. You did something that was kind of remarkable. You took some photographs, mm. and then... You said, I'll, I'll drop these off to you. I'll actually show them to you. Well, the first time I ever saw them was at the Apollo Theater. They yeah. were there for a benefit. When they were leaving backstage, a couple of people were taking their little Instamatic kind of pictures, yeah. and I took a couple of pictures. And John said to the few standing around, he said, people are always taking our picture like this, and we never see them. What happens to these pictures? And I said, I live around the corner from you. I'll show you mine. <laughs> and he said, oh, around the corner. We'll slip them under the door, like very neighborly. Like, yeah. uh, I didn't quite slip it under the door. I did ring the bell. That's right. yeah, yeah. Uh, and much to my surprise, Jerry Rubin answered the door. <laughs> I was like, wow. I'd only seen him on TV, and I was not <laughs> expecting him to answer John and Yoko's doorbell. You know? um, and I remember he asked if they were expecting me, and I said no, and I just left the pictures for them. Uh, and a few years later, when, after we got to be friends, Yoko and I were talking about that at one point. And she said that really impressed them because nobody wanted to just give them something and leave. Right. Everybody wanted something back. Wanted a piece and, of uh, it, yeah. You know, I just thought, I'll give them to you and see what happens. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it, it mattered. <laughs> you know, they liked that. And you were there for some remarkable moments uh, in his life, including, mm. I think, the last time that he and Paul were in a room together. Paul McCartney were in a room I don't know together. if it was the last time they ever saw each other, but I was there one December when... Uh, yeah. We were in the, in the bedroom watching TV, and all of a sudden the doorbell rang. And they live in a very secure building, like yeah. the doorbell of the apartment does not <laughs> ring unless the doorman has told <laughs> right. you somebody's going to come and ring it. <laughs> so the last time that happened, it was customs agents trying to throw John out of the country. So they, they were, I mean, immigration agents. But they, so they were a little nervous, and they asked me to go check the door. And they have a double door, so I opened the inside door, and I heard some Christmas carols. And I yelled back and said, don't worry, it's just kids singing Christmas carols. <laughs> But I opened the outside door, and it was Paul and Linda McCartney, and uh, not just kids. (laughs) Uh, And I said, oh, I think you want to see the guys in the bedroom, and I brought them in. And uh, they were all very happy to see each other, in spite of what lawyers or Mm -hmm. press people say. Uh, They seemed like old friends who were very happy to see each other. They were English. They had a cup of tea. Right. And uh, it was a very nice meeting. Yeah, Uh, But I didn't take any pictures, because they didn't ask me to, and it wasn't a public event. And I didn't want to turn it into a public event and say, hey, you're two Beatles. Let me take a picture. Yeah, yeah. They just seemed like old friends. 
Well, I always felt that there was. I was a waiting for them to ask me. Right. <laughs> well, I always felt that there was a bond between mm -hmm. them that would not be broken by lawyers and right. whatever else happened right. in the press. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and it feels like you sense close. that. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And certainly, over the years, what I've seen, you know, Ringo stayed close with Yoko uh, through the years. Um, you know, business is business. That's yeah. one thing handled by the lawyers, and the press sometimes get word from lawyers, but people tend to uh, relate more personally. So, this photograph. That, this photograph of John at the Statue of Liberty, I think, is one of my most important. Uh, we actually started talking about it in October, because um, the U.S. government was trying to throw John out of the country. Mm -hmm. I think that his crime was that he talked about peace in the time of war, and uh, President Nixon was very afraid that he was going to galvanize support for peace in the time of war, so they wanted to throw him out of the country. Uh, and I felt that the Statue of Liberty was a symbol of welcome to America and that if John was out there by the statue, it would be a statement that we should be welcoming this great artist to America and not trying to throw him out. Uh, oddly enough, the, it didn't really get published a lot at the time. I think a lot of people were, didn't really want to get involved in the politics right. of the case. Uh, after he passed away, it's become one of my most popular pictures because I think that people see... Um, you know, John Lennon as a symbol of personal freedom, similar to the Statue of Liberty. You're listening to Bob Gruen in conversation on The Richard Krause Show. It wasn't a big production to go there. Now, if you were to take no, that photograph... you need permissions and things. Well, you have to get searched. You have to get, you know, just going onto the boat to go yeah. to the island is, is much more of a production. Uh, back then, you didn't have to make a reservation or anything <laughs> in advance. Uh, I actually picked John up in my car. We drove down to the Bowery. Uh, just got on the boat. I mean, he was an English guy, like a tourist, you know. Yeah. You're, you're, well, uh, and, and but also one of the most people. famous people in the world at the time. Well, that too. Actually, there was <laughs> as the boat came in, there was a whole uh, class of, of uh, high school girls yeah. getting off the boat, and they're all like, oh, Beatle, you know. <laughs> and John just kind of like, calm down. If everybody stops screaming, I'll sign an autograph for everybody. And he was wow. pretty quick about it. Yeah. They all got an autograph when we got on the boat. And, uh, and was there a sense when you were taking this photograph that it would go on to have a political importance? Um, not so much. I mean, I was, I was making a statement mm -hmm. about the immigration case, and I thought it would have some impact on that, which it didn't. But it turned out to be a much, much bigger uh, photo and meaning, uh, yeah. and it took on a life of its own. Uh, certainly, it's 40 years later now. I took the picture in 1974. Yeah. It's 45 years later. Are these like a, is this like a, a time capsule for you? When you look back, not all of us have our lives documented, mm. you know, in the way that you do. You can look at these and be taken back to a time or a place. When I see it, I can hear it and smell it. I remember being there. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. it is very much, you know, my life. It's my, my, di my photo diary. <laughs> well, when's the last time you saw John Lennon? To John, John Lennon. Lennon. Uh, two days before he died, actually. Yeah. I was in the studio. Um, the album was coming up, and, they, and we were taking some more pictures for the publicity because the album was doing so well. Uh, it was Friday night uh, to Saturday morning, actually. Uh, we left around 7.30 Saturday morning, and uh, I took the last pictures of them there. Uh, but he was talking about touring around the world. He was talking about bringing the message that he had learned a lot in the five years that he was raising Sean. Uh, everything everybody knows about him was from an earlier time right. when he was pretty wild. His life was kind of chaotic. Uh, he learned about responsibility. He learned about sobriety. He learned about health and diet, uh, eating a macrobiotic diet. And all of that information was going to come out in this world tour. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what the world lost. Uh, he did two interviews just before he passed, one uh, for the BBC with Andy Peebles and one with David Sheff for Playboy magazine. 
And in those, he discusses the things that he learned and the philosophy mm -hmm. going forward. Uh, and that's, I think, the most important books that people could read if they want to know about yeah. John Lennon. Uh, they should they should listen to his records, mm -hmm. and they should read one of those two interviews. Yeah, certainly. The, the I have the Playboy interview. Mm. It was published almost immediately after right. his his passing, uh, in in book form. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're available. You go on eBay, you can find them. Yeah, uh, yeah. The David Chef Playboy interview or the BBC Andy Peebles interview. What comes ah, to Sid. your mind? <laughs> what flashes through your mind uh, when we see this picture of Sid Vicious? Uh, how sad it was that he passed away so early. Yeah. You know, drugs uh, really don't help people. Um, but that night, is on, on his chest, actually, it, there is some blood there. He uh, had leaned over to a fan, and she raised her head really fast and hit him in the nose, and he started bleeding all Perfect. over him, which he kind of enjoyed. He, he came up with his blood all over his mouth and a big smile, <laughs> and then he started taking the blood and splashing at the girl, and she was spitting back to him. And... Then at one point, the blood dried up, and he went over to the amp, and he took a beer bottle and smashed it on the amp. He was about to cut himself. This all sounds normal, but it's not, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and he was about to cut himself when the road manager grabbed his hand, and Sid kind of looked up like a kid with his hand in the candy jar, <laughs> like, oh, I guess I shouldn't do that. You know? uh, and he turned around to play, and the band is like Steve, and, and uh, they're yelling at him, like, What's, we can't hear you. And it turned out that when he hit the amp with the bottle, he had turned it <laughs> off. Turned it off. Uh, the show was much more important to Sid yeah. than the actual uh, music. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And, um, but he and actually, part of that is not just blood. He wrote on his chest, give me a fix, mm -hmm. uh, because he was you know, addicted to drugs at the time. And the, the road managers, the, the management was keeping him away from all the fans. And the only way he could communicate, he actually wrote on his chest so somebody would see it and hopefully throw him something. You know? Throw him something. I don't know if that worked or not, though. Uh, sometimes when I, I look at these photographs, we've got a few more to go through. Mm. Um, I, I, I almost see you as like a Zelig character, uh, having just been there when amazing things were happening. And this. I think you have to be in the right place at the right time, mm -hmm. but then you have to do the right thing. That was rock and roll photographer Bob Gruen, a non musician who helped define a whole generation or two of music. Well, that's it for the show this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. My thanks to Harry Connick Jr., my thanks to Biff Naked and Bob Gruen. Most of all, though, my thanks to you for tuning in. We'll be back next week.